Welcome to our podcast from the Ark Insider. I'm Karen Allen and I'm speaking to you from Johannesburg. My co-presenter is Tara O'Connor, the Managing Director of Ark, the Pan-African Risk Consulting Firm, Africa Risk Consulting, and she joins me from London. The aim of this podcast is to offer some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation to stimulate ideas among those who live, work and breathe African affairs. The format of the show is a recap of events in the news, along with a virtual fireside chat with a guest to mull over the topics trending on the continent. At the moment, we're devoting our coverage to focusing on the COVID-19 pandemic, the lowdowns, the lockdowns, the impact of the economy and its people. So without wasting any further time, Tara, good to speak to you again. Very good to be on the podcast again, Karen. Is normality returning or does it still feel very surreal in London? Well, it feels very surreal because it's a bank holiday weekend and it's a beautiful, beautiful weather outside. And we are still in lockdown and we expect to be in lockdown for a while yet with some uh, relaxed measures, but in the main still in lockdown. Yeah, same here. And I found it really hard to be efficient. I seem to have spent days trying to source small items like black ink printer cartridges, obviously very small fry compared to people who need to find food or the daily news that we're getting of, of small businesses going under. But nevertheless, we're safe, we're well, and we're just having to roll with it, I guess. That's the only thing to do, be patient. Well, the news this past week has been filled with stories, including those about countries beginning to ease the lockdown. Let's take a listen. Across Europe, businesses are starting to reopen and children are heading back to school as lockdown conditions are being rolled back. As the Union Federation Casati is pleading with government to ease the lockdown as soon as possible to avoid the economy from killing. After five long weeks of lockdown, this Lagos Grocers is relieved at a partial return to normality. She has repeatedly tested negative for the coronavirus, but tonight the U.S. Vice President is self-isolating on the advice of White House medical Countries experts. Countries whose healthcare systems are buckling under the coronavirus pandemic are turning to Cuba for help. The South Korean Since president has warned of a second wave of the virus in his country. 34 new cases have been reported today. That's the highest daily number for a month. Well, one other story that really struck me as interesting this week, Tara, comes from Tanzania. The country's been pretty silent on releasing the latest COVID-19 figures for the past week. And of course, earlier this week, the head of the coronavirus testing laboratory was sacked. Now, it's not clear whether there was a, a, a political motive here, whether they're scapegoating or whether there was some actual technical problem. But you'll remember that President Magafuli last week claimed that the National Laboratory had been sabotaged by imperialists. Now, we've heard from Zito Kabwe. He's the opposition leader who, incidentally, I interviewed just a few weeks before the lockdown. And he's thrown his weight behind the director of that laboratory. And he's accused the government of not taking COVID-19 seriously. So universities and schools are closed, but markets, trading centres, transport links, all of those are still operating as usual with very little sign of social distancing. This seems to be a case of science and politics clashing. We've seen that happening, of course, in the United States. But in Tanzania, it seems to have taken on a sort of nationalist dimension. Are you surprised by that? 
Um, not really. I think it, uh, it's very in character. And in fact, he followed up the sacking with an uh, actual investigation and accusing the laboratory of, uh, of falsifying uh, the COVID figures. So I think a bit uh, in character and quite maverick. Yeah, definitely left a field. Anything else that was of interest to you? Well, what really jumped out at me this week was just how plucky uh, Ethiopian Airlines is and has actually stepped in to fill the gap that you and I have talked about in various podcasts uh, since we started um, and has continued its cargo um, cargo services and its repatriation services where most other national airlines are grounded and sadly running out of money. Um, and in fact, Ethiopian has expanded its cargo services and has now delivered its first international cargo from Burkina Faso to Germany this week. I wonder how much that cost, Tara, because, you know, we talked about prices hiking up. I bet a ticket to get your cargo onto the plane must be exorbitant. Absolutely. I mean, I think all, even all the repatriation flights have been almost double. The fares have been almost double what a normal flight would be. And as we said a few, uh, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, that actually at at that stage, it was almost five times normal freight. But then it comes to the other side of this story, which is not so great. Uh, And this week, South Africa's private airline, Comair, joined its state-owned competitors, South African Airways and SA Express, and was forced to file for business rescue. There are a string of new airports companies across the continent that have just you know, are seeing a fledgling uh, airline industry emerge, you know, with small airlines, small charter plane airlines becoming bigger and and actually becoming national carriers such as ProFlight in Zambia. But they're all grounded and there is a knock-on effect onto the, uh, onto the airports. Uh, Mozambique Airport, for example, is losing about $2 million a month, it reported this week. So... Yeah. Tricky, and it will be tricky to get those airlines and that industry back up and running. Yeah, very worrying. Okay, Tara, thank you. You're listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen, in Johannesburg and Tara O'Connor in London. The focus of our podcast continues to be the response to the COVID-19 pandemic and what it means for the African continent. Well, looking at social media in the past week or so, one posting on Twitter read, when COVID is done, could we please hold a special round of applause to thank the creatives in our societies, the memers, the TikTokers, the videoers, the writers, the cartoonists, the comics, the artists, the poets, the dancers, and so on. Well, it rather informed our choice of guest. So today, can we welcome the Kenyan cartoonist and political commentator, Patrick Gathara. Patrick, good to have you on the Ark Insider. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. You're very much welcome to our socially distanced podcast. You've got me speaking to you from Johannesburg and Tara in London. Hello, Patrick. You're welcome. Yeah. Hi, Tara. How are you doing? Of course, Patrick, in times of gravity and fear, which, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic has evoked in us, the public needs some light relief. So I've got to ask you, do you consider yourself as a cartoonist an essential service? (laughs) Um, I I don't know about essential service, but yes, I mean, I think um, uh, it is important, uh, uh, the 
light relief part. Although I have to say, um, as a political cartoonist, um, we really do delve and deal with um, some of the grave issues. So while we might work in the field of humor, the issues we are dealing with do tend to be quite grave. And it's all, not always the intention, if you will, to evoke a belly laugh. That's absolutely true. And of course, you can go much further as a cartoonist, as a satirist, than a, a journalist that's giving straight forward reportage and that could land you otherwise in, in jail or even worse. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. I suppose for, for cartoonists, and this has been the case uh, uh, throughout, the humour does tend to be a bit of a protection from the reactions of uh, the the authorities. Um, at least in the case of Kenya, we've never really had a cartoonist who's been sort of uh, jailed, even in the worst days of uh, the Moy dictatorship um, uh, throughout the 90s and uh, uh, the 80s. But I think that the platform allows for um, people to push a government in ways that um, regular journalists cannot do because I mean obviously we're infusing not just our own opinions into the the new space but also bringing in the element of satire which allows people to kind of take a dig at the people in power in ways that I think regular um, news broadcasts regular um, uh, even print journalists cannot really do we're using Using the medium of sound rather than pictures, but I'm going to have to try and describe then some of your cartoons. But there's one which is very biting, which shows a policeman with a riot shield beating a man on the ground with the caption, flattening the curve. Yes, well, um, I think when I was doing that, I was really thinking about how to portray the, to explain the government's responses um, uh, uh, to COVID-19. I think in, in the case of Kenya and I think across Africa, We've seen governments be really, really tough and sort of take an almost as a, a law and order approach to, to, to COVID as opposed to a, a public health approach. It's not so much about getting consent and treating people as, uh, or even people might get sick, you know, as patients, but more treating them as suspects, you know. And this has been justified using the whole logic of let's flatten the and I think for me then it looked like very much flattening the curve meant beating uh, sort of society into shape you know and I think that's what they've been doing is, is essentially taking the club and the truncheons um, out to citizens you know try to get them to stay at home wear their masks you know don't go to the bar etc you know but it's from a very harsh place and it's it's more about demanding obedience I think than rather than um, cultivating uh, people's consent. But there has been a need, if you like, for a period of time to surrender rights and to give law enforcement really quite important powers. However unpleasant it is, it may just be temporary. Um, obviously, Kenya's got a history of extrajudicial killings and police brutality. But do you think there is an understanding among some sectors of Kenyan society that it might be necessary to have you know, a rigorous and strict police force, even though they're not held in particularly high regard during the best of times? No, actually, I, I think it's really 
counterproductive. And I think even the government is starting to recognize that it's been very counterproductive. I think what it really does is, um, as you mentioned, Kenya has been, um, has uh, Kenyans have had a contentious relationship with the security forces, with the police for a long time. And when the police are the face of the government response, you know, it looks not so much as if that government is here to help rather than it's here to criminalize, punish, and oppress as it has always done, you know. Um, and again, it takes away from the urgency of having a whole of society approach where people are convinced and are persuaded that this is a threat to everybody and they've got to participate. One where they just feel like they're being forced to. Nobody takes the time to explain to them why these things are necessary and what measures have been made um, uh, to allow them to cope. So if you take the example of uh, telling people to stay at home, you know, rather than simply issuing edicts, which is what government has been doing, and directives and saying stay at home, you know, if it had actually engaged in a conversation with people to try and say, all right, what can we do? We need to avoid certain things, but we know everybody, I mean, there are people who need to go out, you know, and here are the arrangements we are making for them, you know, if it's about delivering food, etc. This is what we are doing. Rather than simply announcing a curfew, then sending police out with batons and whips and tear gas, which is what they did. I guess it boils down to leadership, doesn't it? And and Tara, you and I were having a chat offline actually about a, a cartoon that you'd remarked on that came out of South Africa. Tell us a bit more about that. Yes, I mean, I was just thinking about cartoons and how superbly uh, they are able to capture the moment. And I know that you know Shapiro, who produced a fabulous thing for South Africa's Freedom Day, which shows very clearly how uh, Cyril Ramaphosa has um, adopted or has assumed the mantle of uh, of Nelson Mandela. And I think the caption was, when you get to the top of a mountain, you have to, uh, there are several others to climb. And in the rest of the, the cartoon was just a graph showing the economic catastrophe that has occurred with COVID-19. Uh, one, one of the things that um, uh, when you talk about leadership, um, I think our, our leaders also have to be conscious about the history that they, 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 they come here with, you know, so that um, how our citizens regard them, you know, really feeds into how then the messaging is understood, how when they speak to 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 um, to their citizens, you know, um, the, their citizens will tend to regard them within the the context of, of 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 how historically government has dealt with with the people. And I think to, for uh, uh, for a lot of our leaders, they don't really understand this, and they don't really um, uh, appreciate it. So they speak almost as if people will will obey. I need to ask you, Patrick, have you ever drawn a cartoon of a leader, Kenyan or otherwise, political or otherwise, who you really respect? I can't really think of uh, such a leader. You know, um, I think it's almost within the DNA of a cartoonist to kind of want to uh, bring down the people who are exalted, if you will. You know, um, so for, for, for a lot of what I do is really about getting society to question some of the things that it holds dear. You know, so that if it's a, a leader who has been put up 
uh, kind of like on a pedestal. I think most cartoonists would think it's their job to kind of knock him down. Um, I remember during the, uh, the Moi dictatorship, yeah, in the 80s and 90s, mostly within the 90s when I was uh, doing my drawings, you know, part of the purpose of it, because the state had really built this personality cult around Moy, you know, and it was very hard for people to talk about him as a human being with failures, you know, um, ATC. Um, and I think one of the things that cartoonists were really, really um, uh, uh, successful in doing was being able to bring down Moi to a level where the ordinary populace could see him. And it's not just cartoonists, it's other satirists as well. That really allowed a discussion to evolve because once he was able to be humanized, then the fear of talking about him kind of dissipates to, to, a, to a point. And I think cartoonists were really crucial towards doing that. So in terms of portraying politicians that we respect, um, first, there are very few that I think I would say I would respect, but also um, it's really not my job to sort of um, bang their drum. It's like when journalists get asked about positive news stories, they always used to say, well, you know, that's PR, that's PR. <laughs> Look, there's one particular cartoon that, that um, Tara and I have been talking about because it really is very clever. Um, it's been a big story across Africa, Madagascar bottling up its alleged remedy for export. Um, that's really informed one of your very, very clever cartoons. Just describe that one to me because it has, of course, the Madagascar reference because uh, it's uh, the, the post ocean that's being pointed is from Madagascar. We seem to recognize one of the characters in your cartoon. It is the zebra from uh, the movie Madagascar. I think it's called Marty. And if you remember, there was a scene where um, uh, he had set up, just after they arrived on the island, um, uh, they, he had set up this bar. You know, and they're all drinking salt water and spitting it out. And I thought that would be a really good metaphor for whether we would swallow this um, uh, cure coming out of Madagascar that is not really being scientifically confirmed, you know, as having an effect. And I think the the the, the that that for me was sort of what made uh, uh, the cartoon was that idea of us being told to swallow something swallow can be also sort of metaphorically accepting something that is dubious you know so playing on all these sort of word games um, around a cartoon I think for me really is a bit exciting um, obviously as you mentioned uh, um, I think at your beginning you had spoken about uh, Magufuli in Tanzania and how he's now importing um, the uh, this um, drug or, or this uh, cure supposed from Madagascar. A lot of the debates around it uh, within the circles have been in have really focused on whether, on, on sort of the African side of it and about how as Africans we should be proud that we have come up with this cure, which for me I think again is kind of a distortion. I know it's, it's even as an African, I want to see things being subjected to scientific tests. 
It does sort of fit into the African solutions for African problems narrative, doesn't it? Um, I suppose it's interesting that among the groups that have been quite keen to distance themselves from it, it includes ECOWAS, the the Western African bloc. And, uh, you know, they have really, uh, they're not condemned it, but they've kept pretty quiet about it. Um, The African Union's not said a great deal either. And obviously the WHO has tried to be as diplomatic as possible and said we need, you know, efficacy trials and we need to know if there are any side effects. I mean, what's what's been your view about that, Patrick? It's all about whether it works. And I think that um, if it does, they shouldn't be afraid to subject it, to take it through the scientific tests. You know, simply branding it as an African thing doesn't exclude it from the science and shouldn't exclude it from the science. In fact, I think it would be a really important thing if they could demonstrate it. You know, it would be a real feather in their cap. Uh, And I think it really devalues the idea of African rather than um, any enabling and, uh, uh, and and building it up. True, and the but the cartoon that uh, that of yours that I particularly liked uh, was the social distance one, where uh, clearly you, I presume the that you you have the sort of fat cat on the left and the ordinary citizen on the right holding up a sign saying uh, common sense, which did lead me to think about this, you know, the 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 two rules, and and I was wondering um, whether Kenyan politicians who are notoriously some of the best paid in the world have followed other leaders into uh, taking some of the pain themselves um, and offering up some of their salaries to, uh, to the fight. Well, uh, the honest answer is no, they haven't. Um, uh, they've come up with lots of excuses why they're not going to give up their salaries. The president uh, himself said he was uh, going to take a pay cut, you know. Uh, but the uh, the MPs are saying that actually they're not as well paid as we think they are. Um, the fact is they are not interested in contributing to this, you know. Um, I, I think we've become used in Kenya to sort of a cynical appraisal of, of, of our politicians. They're not really in it to help society. They're in it to help themselves, you know. Um, and, and for the for, for, for many of them, this, this is actually an opportunity, if you will, to do the reverse, is to actually to make money. So when you hear of um, uh, the money that the IMF is pumping into um, uh, the economy, which is uh, about, uh, what, three quarters of a billion uh, 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 shillings. They're all seeing opportunities to to take it up. I don't think they're losing sleep over how many Kenyans um, uh, uh, cannot eat or or, or don't have access to masks, etc. For for most of us, we don't expect that's something that they're concerned about. Patrick, we could talk to you for hours. This is absolutely fascinating. But we're running out of time, and we have run out of time, other than to say thank you so much for joining us on the Ark Insider. It's been fascinating. It really has. (laughs) Really welcome. Come, I really enjoyed it. And hopefully that's the first of many visits to our, to this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> well, you, you've got us as a captive uh, audience here, so we can always catch us at home. <laughs> this time next year, you're booked. <laughs> Tara, good to talk to you as ever in London. We'll do it all again next week with enthusiasm, intelligence and with style. Which indeed is becoming the watchword of this podcast. Um, look forward to it, Karen. <laughs> 
You've been listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen, and Tara O'Connor. Thank you for joining us. If you're interested, Tara's team at Ark produces a daily chronology of events, as well as reports and briefings about the region. You can sign up for these at info at Africa Risk Consulting. That's all one word, dot com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address. And do feel free to share the podcast on social media and amongst friends. Bye-bye. Bye.